you have your copy of God's Word, would you open up to the book of Matthew, chapter 26, which is where we find our text this morning. And as you're finding your way uh, to that scripture, beginning in verse 30, let me just say this. If you are a first-time guest, if uh, Mama drug you to church this morning and you're here, not of your own free will, but to please her, then we welcome you and we're glad that you're here. I want to say this to you, we, uh, we will speak about the things uh, leading up to uh, the resurrection of Jesus next week. We're going to begin a transition uh, on Sunday mornings where I'll be preaching through the book of 1 Samuel. And so I want to encourage you to come back if this is your first time to be here. Uh, just to tell you a little bit about our church, it's important to me that I want you to know if you're a guest. We desire with our whole heart to be a church that exists for this city. We want the city of Fort Worth to know that Travis Avenue is here at 800 West Berry Street and that we desire to see change and redemption and we desire to see the gospel permeate every aspect of our city. And we want them to see that by how we, first of all, care for one another, but also how we care for the strangers and the sojourners and those that would travel through our city. We're a church for the city, a church for the nations, and we wish to display that in every and all things that we do. Well, last night I did one of my favorite things that I always do each week as I try to take my beautiful wife out on a date. I've learned after 15, 16 years of marriage that if I want a healthy marriage that I need to pursue my wife and I need to date her. And so last night we went on our weekly date. We found ourselves somewhere down near Montgomery Plaza and we began to eat. And I began to notice as we were eating all types of, of these men that were walking in here. And to be quite honest with you, they looked like they had just gotten out of a fist fight. And they had showed up wearing sweatpants and some of them had swollen eyes. And then I began to notice something about each of these men that walked into this restaurant where we were at. I began to notice their ears a little bit. Sort of a peculiar thing to notice on most men, but what I began to see were some ears and, and what's known as cauliflower ear. You know what I'm talking about. And these men had cauliflower ear, and it, was, it were ears that the skin had separated from the cartilage. And let me tell you, you've not seen as ugly as an ear as I saw last evening. And I asked the waitress, what's going on and where are all these guys coming from? Is the WWE or WWF in the Dickies Arena? And she said, well, actually, no, but there is a wrestling tournament going on in the city of Fort Worth this weekend. And it's the Olympic team trials to see those that would qualify for Tokyo. And they're there over there wrestling. And, you know, cauliflower ear is a particular thing because the more that those wrestlers begin to mash their heads together, violently uh, wrestling with one another, that ear begins to swell up and it begins to separate and, and it becomes pressed and it becomes further deformed as they begin to experience the wrath and the anger and the skill of their opponent on the wrestling mat. Well, you know, we find Jesus in Matthew 26 located in the Garden of Gethsemane, which was also meant to be the oil press. The place in which God would, would press upon the Son of God and, and he would begin to pour out his wrath on his Son for the sins of the world. If you would follow along with me as we begin reading in verse 36 of Matthew 26 where the text says this. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and I pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. 
Here we have Jesus, the Son of God, preparing to to be executed by the Father for the sins of the world. And Jesus realizes what it is that he's about to endure, and he begins to prepare for those things. And just before the, the writer begins to identify where it is that Jesus goes, there's this little interchange between Jesus and Peter in the previous verses where Peter makes a promise to Jesus that he would never leave him or forsake him. And Jesus says to him prior to that, before the rooster crows, you will do just that. And so he travels with his closest friends into the Garden of Gethsemane, and and he tells them to sit while he goes over and he prays. And then notice what it says at the end of verse 37. He says, he, being Jesus, began to be sorrowful and troubled. As Jesus looks ahead to the events that are before him, he sees what is about to happen to him. And it begins to trouble his spirit. That word sorrowful in the Greek there could be rendered as just simply being horrified. Not necessarily scared for himself and what he was about to do, but looking into the future and seeing that God's wrath was going to be poured out upon him for your sins and my sins. It brought him this sense of terror as he began to see and was getting ready to experience the weight and the gravity of sin. And so his spirit began to be troubled. And he began to enter into a state of great sorrow. Now we know a little bit about Jesus prior to this, that he was a man that was well acquainted with grief and sorrow. For in the chapter previous to this, we see that he wept at the grave of Lazarus before he brought him back to to life, did he not? He didn't necessarily weep because Lazarus was gone as a friend, but rather he weeped at the results and the effects of sin and living in a fallen world and that because of sin, people die. And so Jesus sees his friend laying there, Lazarus, weeping, and Jesus was well acquainted with that grief. We also saw from last week how Jesus began to enter into the city of Jerusalem, riding upon the donkey. And Luke tells us that as he got to the crest and began to look down at the city, he began to weep over the sins of his people. And he experienced great sorrow in that moment. Yet at the same time, this moment in Matthew 26, where he began to be sorrowful and, and he began to be troubled, the, the truth is we cannot fully understand and comprehend the depths of his agony here in this moment. And the reason that is so is because we can't quite identify and understand what it means to be the sinless, blameless Son of God about to endure the wrath of the Father on the cross to absorb all of the sin, to drink the cup of wrath, and to to take the sword from God that should have been me. And here he was in the garden, sorrowful, and he was troubled. One author put it this way, that this word sorrowful, it was almost as if you, you came home one evening to find your family had been murdered. And the sorrow and the grief, and the agony, and the anguish you would feel at such a terrible and such a horrible moment. Luke describes this interaction with Jesus as he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he, and he says that, that this condition was, was so severe, and he was under such duress that his capillaries burst, and he began to sweat blood because he understood the agony that was before him. 
And in this moment, you have Jesus, the the Son of God, the eternal Word of God, who who spoke the very words of the worlds into existence, who walked upon waves and calmed the sea, who cast out demons, and he healed those with diseases. This Son of God, who brings the dead back to life and the agony and the anguish he feels because of your sin and because of mine. The text goes on in verse 38, and he says, Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Then he looks at the sons of Zebedee, and he says, Remain here, and notice what he says at the end of verse 38, and watch with me. Now, we understand that Jesus is the Word of God, that He is eternal. There was never a time when Jesus was not. He is completely self-sufficient apart from all other human beings and relationships. Yet in this moment of intimacy, in this moment that embodies that, that He was uh, human, and, and, and here He was in, in this moment, and He tells His friends, He tells those closest to Him, stay here and, and watch with me. Come alongside me. Pray for me. Pray for yourselves. Pray for one another for the the hour is at hand. And going a little further in verse 39, it says, He fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, would you let this cup pass from me? Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What a great disposition that the Son of God embodies to the people of God. Father, not my will, but, but rather your will be done. Shouldn't this be the demeanor and the the posture of every believer that we pray before a holy and righteous God and we say, God, today, not my will, but, but rather yours on this earth as it is in the kingdom of heaven. Just as Jesus prays to the Father, shouldn't we also pray the same as well? Watch and pray, verse 41, that you may not enter into temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Think about it this way, leading up to perhaps the most significant moment in human history, and Jesus begins to plead to the Father, if there is another way, let it be so, and and yet the Father responds with silence. The Father doesn't answer him. The Father begins the, the, the punishment and the chastisement psychologically upon Jesus. We often think and we lean into to ideas like the resurrection and truths of the resurrection. And we typically focus on the physical torment that, that existed when Christ was crucified on the cross. And, and make no mistake about it, it was an excruciating death. In every which way, and and it was meant to to optimize pain and to to bring it about as slowly and as dreadfully as possible. But separation from the Father is more than just physical death. Separation from the Father involves a separation of the Spirit and, and this abandonment that almost existed in this moment. And we see Jesus experiencing this idea. And he goes back to verse 42, and he says again for the second time, he goes away and he prays, my father, if this cannot pass, unless I drink it, would your will be done? And again, he comes back in verse 43, and he finds them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and he prayed for the third time, 
saying the same words once again. And then he came to the disciples and he said to them, sleep and take your rest. Later on, see, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The New Testament scholar, William Lane, says this about these last verses, that in this moment, what we see is, this is the horror of one who lived wholly for the Father, lived in perfection, never made a mistake, who came to be with his Father for a brief interlude before his death, and instead he finds hell rather than heaven opened before him. Hell was open, heaven was closed. And somehow in that moment, Jesus began to experience the reality of, of what we've come to know hell as a literal physical place of eternal punishment, but also hell being simply this, the complete abandonment of God, the absence of his goodness, the absence of his mercy, and, and then what is experienced there in that moment in the middle of that void is, is his wrath and his punishment towards those who refuse to believe and walk in faithfulness and obedience. And it's in this place in Gethsemane where we find Jesus that he looks upon the cup of God's wrath and it overwhelmed him to the point of terror. Not being fearful as you and I are fearful, but understanding the anguish and the agony that he would endure for the sake of all mankind. Jonathan Edwards described this verse as just simply being like a dam that was breaking. Charles Spurgeon referred to it as a gnat being run over by a freight train, the, the wrath of God that was unstoppable in this moment, and Christ opens up to the horrors of all that would exist in the cross, the physical punishment, and the psychological anguish. And for the question for the believer this morning, as we simply ask this question, why would the gospel writers inform us of, of his sorrow and his anguish and his, and his grief? Well, I think the answer to that question lies in the fact, so it was so that we could see Jesus, King Jesus, voluntarily and willingly, who for the joy set before him goes in to experience that the wrath and the punishment of God. And it was so that we would be able to see the extent to which he would go to offer his life as a ransom for you and for me. The gravity of it. Not the minimization of, of sin and, and not the minimization of, of evil, but Christ simply saying, I will do it instead of you. I will go instead and die in your place. Paul echoes this in Romans 5.8 when he says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The writer of Hebrews says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, we get our eyes on him who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He reigns. You see, the good news of the gospel of Jesus this morning for us is simply this, that for Jesus there's no more striving, there's no more anguish, there's no more sorrow. That he's a God that, that sits at the right hand of his Father and he rules and reigns over the universe. And he's in complete control. 
Even in the midst of, of pandemics and, and COVID, even in the midst of, of unrest, there he is and he, and he rules and reigns and he allows all things to happen for his purposes and, and for those that were called according to his purpose, good things that come with that plan and with that purpose. As Dr. Greenway prayed, we worship today and we celebrate a risen Lord. And, and we can say that we, we sing to a risen Lord, but the question for us this morning is, do we live in such a way that we display that Christ is risen when we leave here today? You'll notice in our Welcome Center, we got some new signage that was put up. And as you walk down those stairs back into the Welcome Center, you'll see a, a little phrase in a sentence that, that we use from time to time around here. And it just simply says this, Travis, you are sent you're sent. And the idea behind that statement that we use is that the gospel is not so much about, hey, come and see all the wonderful things that God is doing here at 800 Westbury, but rather the gospel is more about going and telling people who have not yet come to this physical location and telling them and understanding that God sends every single one of us who was born of the Spirit of God out into this city to be ambassadors and to be proclaimers of his message and his truth, he has sent us to share and to tell and to proclaim and to go. And so therefore we are sent into our city. We are sent into our state. We are sent into the uttermost parts of the world. In verses 47 through 50, we see this brief interplay of when Judas ultimately, who has already betrayed Jesus, he ultimately betrays him. And he kisses Jesus, and Jesus responds in verse 50. He says, friends, do what you came to do. And they came up, and they laid hands on Jesus, and they seized him. Picking up in verse 51, he says this, And behold, one of those who was with Jesus stretched out his hand, and he drew his sword. We know this to be Peter. And he struck the servant of the high priest, and he cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. In the beginning, we sort of glossed over that interchange that Jesus had with Peter. And Peter saying, I will never forsake you, I will never abandon you. And we have in this moment this brazen display of, of, of great courage, but, but perhaps misguided passion. And I think perhaps Peter's actions are helpful when we understand them in the, in the sense of the broader kingdom perspective. Peter picks up the sword because he thinks like most people did then and many people think today that the way in which you bring change into the world is through power, coercive power. My brothers and sisters, can I say this to you gently, though we should care about the power structures in the world, and, and we should care, politically speaking, about things, the ultimate way in which we bring everlasting change into the world is not through power and even ultimately legislation, but it is about when we as the people of God lift up the name of God and we proclaim his name to the uttermost parts of the world. It's when we serve with, with great passion and we display compassion and mercy to those that need it. You see, Jesus goes on and he says that it's through my death that I'm going to release a power that is greater than the sword, that it is greater than, than any kind of coercive power, and I'm going to grow my kingdom, and I'm going to grow my church, and I'm not going to forsake those things. He gives his life in sacrificial service. Friends, this is the posture of the church today. It has not changed. That our demeanor and our, our posture and our presence 
today is one ultimately about sacrifice, sacrificing for the good of one another, sacrificing for the well-being of our neighbor, sacrificing for those that have yet to hear the name of Jesus. That's our mission, is that we would see people that are far from God and they would come to know the riches and the excellencies of what it means to believe in Christ. You see, Judas wanted to see Jesus go to the cross so that he could get rid of him. Peter wanted to avoid Jesus actually going to the cross in order that he could protect him. And we have these two individuals that were followers of Jesus that want different things for different reasons. But here's the truth, that both men in this moment are clueless about the cross and why Jesus came. You see, Jesus understood, and this is why he experienced the anguish and the turmoil, that he understood that he had to take the cup of God's wrath, and he didn't come to wield the sword, but rather to step in front of the sword so that you and I didn't have to. This is the gospel. This is why we celebrate today and the things that we celebrate. You see, Jesus didn't just die for you, but rather he died instead of you in your place. And as we celebrate Resurrection Sunday here this morning at Travis, as we enter back into our small groups, and as we attempt to, to find some, some normal rhythms, whatever those normal rhythms look like today and tomorrow and the weeks to come and in the years to come, whatever those rhythms are, it does not matter because our mission has never changed, not once. It was about three weeks prior to Easter last year that we shut down for the first time and went online. To be honest with you, if you're a first-time guest here on Easter Sunday, this is my first time in person as the pastor here on Easter Sunday too. So welcome, we're both visitors. <laughs> and you and I can just get acquainted and I'll just bring you along and I'll introduce you to everybody else that I, that I know around here and we'll just be the awkward ones here on the first Sunday of Easter as we go about and we do our business and we seek to be on mission with the Lord. But as we think back to this past year, church family, as I, as I look out into this room and I see many faces that I haven't seen in, in well over a year, and, and, and rightly so, and, and for different reasons, Lord, it is, it is good that you are back. Your presence here today, it, it means something. It means more than just coming and sitting in a pew. It means more than just, just being in attendance and, and not forsaking the gathering. It means that you come and, and you contribute and, and you make this place a better place because you were here as we lift up the name of Jesus under the influence of the Spirit of God. As we serve one another, as we seek the welfare of, of one another just as Jesus sought our welfare in this moment. Matthew goes on in Matthew 27 and about verse 46, Matthew describes the death of Jesus in this way. He says, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. He gets to the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when Jesus received the, the sour wine in John 19, making that statement, he says, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. To tell us die. When Jesus uses that phrase, it is finished, he means the debt has been paid. It's over at that point. And then three days later, he resurrects from the tomb. And he proves every doubter and every skeptic wrong that thought otherwise. 
He proves that every miracle, everything he said was, was actually true, and in fact, that the resurrection was the ultimate test to, to make sure that he was who he says he was, and that we understand that without the resurrection of Jesus, there is no faith in Christianity. There's no purpose. There's no plan outside that. It is finished. The debt has been paid. This morning, I simply ask you, has your debt Acknowledging your debt, do you understand that it has been paid? For the Bible just simply says this, to be saved, we call upon the name of the Lord. We repent of our sins and we believe that he was who he says he was. My sophomore year of college, one of my best friends gave me a book to read called Through Gates of Splendor. Through Gates of Splendor is one of my favorite books of all time. It's probably the ultimate or one of the ultimate, maybe the top three missionary stories of all times. If you haven't read it, you should definitely read it. But in Through Gates of Splendor, Elizabeth Elliot, the widow of Jim Elliot, describes a, a harrowing tale of her husband Jim, uh, uh, what, what was known as the, 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 the Big Five, that, that went to Ecuador to, to preach to a group of, of Indians that lived out into the jungle that had never heard the name of Jesus. And she talks about how all of these men in the, in the late or early 50s, mid-50s, began to how they grew up and how they eventually rallied around down in South America and they began to target this, this group that had never heard the name of Jesus. And the first time they met this, these group of Indians, it went well, but in their second meeting on January the 8th of 1956, all five of these American missionaries were stabbed to death by spears on a beach near a river. Now, many of us know this story. We've either read the book or you've seen the documentary, but one of the, the things that often gets left out in this story, we know that eventually the wives of these five men go back and they, they preach the gospel to these Indians and they, they get saved and they come to know Christ. But one of the forgotten details of that story was that those men on that second encounter, when they landed that plane on that beachhead, they were carrying guns and ammunition to protect themselves. And yet when their bodies were found, not a single bullet was fired. Not a single one. Steve Saint, the son of uh, Nate Saint, explained later, and he says this, and I quote, he says, my dad knew that if he died, he would go to heaven. He also knew that if the men attacking him died, that they wouldn't go to heaven. So instead, he died for them. He did what, what Jesus did for us, that when the hour came of decision, he decided not to take a life, but rather to offer one instead. Now, Mr. Steve Saint later on befriended the man who murdered his dad on that beachhead. And he became an adopted father, to, to a surrogate father to his kids. The man that, that took his own father's life then became a surrogate father to his own children. And friend, I would contend with you this morning that the only way that is possible, it is only possible because of a resurrected son who conquered sin, death, and evil. And a gospel that changes people and it, and it moves them and it, and it challenges them in, in certain ways to live on mission for him and to, to be near him. When Jesus breathes out his 
last breath here in this moment, in the agony of Gethsemane, in the agony of the cross, and the, the torture of those things here in this moment, embodied in the flesh. Think about it this way. The name above all other names. The one who is described as the wellspring of life, the one who is referred to as the wonderful counselor who has been called the redeemer and a friend who has been referenced as the bread of life and the bright and morning star. He's the ruler and he's the rescuer of all, the coming one, the friend of sinners, the conqueror, the lawgiver, the incarnate word, the good shepherd, the king of kings and the prince of peace, the hope of glory, the only begotten, the great cornerstone, the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valley, the ancient of days, the great advocate for you and me, the invincible, the immortal, Emmanuel, Alpha and Omega, whom everything was created for him and by him and through him. Every moment in history is pointing to the fact that he alone is worthy of all things. Friends, it is about him. It will always be about him. It was never not about him. And so Christ goes to the garden so that he could purchase salvation for you and so that he could drink your cup of God's wrath and that he could bear your sword that you should have received. Friend, this morning, have you received that today?